Amen. Thanks, John. Welcome once again this morning. Start again with that. <laughs> you need a volunteer? Who can come up and show us uh, in illustrative form what we are doing? I got a large one and a small one here. This is the big one for people like me, you know. Come on. Who can do it? I need a volunteer for Jesus here. Step right up. There we go, Mick. Now take your first page with all the morning while Mickey holds it in suspension. We'll read, we'll read through these, both, both sides, both sides, you know, all the way across. I'm trying to. You can do it. We'll read through all of these very slowly, okay? Take the first page. 
We'll do it at this pace. One God and three members of the God. We're all on the front page. Here we go, all together. One God and three members of the Godhead. Full deity and perfect humanity of Christ. God's word written by man. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Faith and works. Prayer and the will of God. Good man. Doesn't it feel, doesn't it feel good though? You, you, you can stop. That's enough. We don't want to injure anyone. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 29.29. Anybody know that by heart yet? Go ahead. Say it for us. Forever. Yeah. That's right. That we should do the works of the law. Of this law. Everybody turn to Bibles. That's the one we want to memorize. That was a good job. The secret things. There are three basic concepts that are mentioned. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Step two. But those that are revealed. Those things that are revealed belong to us. And our children forever. That's the second statement. And the third statement is the applicational one, that we may do the words of this law, all the words of this law. Now, some of you will say, oh, there's the loophole. We're not under law, so we don't have to do well. Guess what? All nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the epistles for our ready and happy obedience, and then when that is not, the Sabbath day predates the law, goes back all the way to the uh, time of creation where God set aside a special day for his people to remember to rest and rest to remember. And uh, what we have instinctively done in that, the early church did, is move from a, a Saturday Sabbath to the first day of the week. And isn't the first day of the week a different day? Sure is different for us. It's a wonderful day, and it was underlined, as I mentioned last week, when because of the snow we thought it was wise uh, back in Dubuque to cancel. Ruined Sunday. It really did. It felt like a vacuum the whole day. We were, in, in theory, enjoying it. But one of the little boys, Ken's daughter's son, when we called around and, and Ken had told the boys uh, they, wasn't going to go to, they weren't going to church because no boy said I like to go to church. Well, that's right. And we miss it when we don't. So, secret things belong to the Lord our God. And we go to the door of some of those things. And as our brother said today, uh, can't quite understand it, but we do worship. And that's the point of it all. If we understood everything about God, I doubt we'd worship Him. Because He'd be just like us then. So uh, we go to the, the secret things belong to God. Some things he won't answer. Some things we can get hold of. And we describe and defend so that we don't say more or less than Scripture so we understand accurately. And that's really what we're trying to do. And when I get to the end of being able to describe and defend, I think that is when we understand we have a rational faith, not an irrational faith, it takes us many steps 
into understanding God, but says, you know what? You can't totally understand God. I tell you what you can understand, and then have faith. To me, that's a non-mysterious definition of a life of faith. Go as far as you can about knowing God. Recognize He is God and we are not. Secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which He has revealed, and that's what we're trying to do, push to the door of secrecy. Those things which He has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. (coughs) That we can understand, that we might do the words of the law. Do what He the one only and true God has told us to do. And that's a great concept. Sometimes we don't understand what he does in our lives. We're there about every day. And uh, then sometimes we don't understand or readily accept the things that he tells us to do. That's called obedience. Sang about that in that great hymn. He learned obedience. Isn't that wonderful? Even when we don't understand the why of those commandments. He knows. And uh, hence we obey, trusting an omniscient God. Today, this morning, we'd like to take up uh, probably the greatest of, of these uh, tensions that we hold. The deity and humanity of Christ. I have a uh, preference as to the greatest of miracles in the Bible. What's your favorite? What's your, this is the number one miracle. Which one is that for you? There'll be variations, I'm sure. I can't say I'm going to tell you the inspired greatest miracle, but it's one I think is. What's the miracle that stands out most in your thinking of God's work? Resurrection. Resurrection. I I think I had four resurrection votes there. Pardon? Five, okay. Six. Any others? What was it? The incarnation. Incarnation? Any any for the incarnation? That's one, two, three, four, <laughs> five. It's a tie now. And since I'm the preacher, that's the right one. <laughs> Isn't that the way it goes? Now, I think I can give some support to that. Uh, in Hebrews 2, uh, when he is describing that Christ is superior to angels because of his humanity. He does not give the age to come, that is the age of the millennium, uh, to the judgment and direction of angels, but he gives that to man. And he quotes Psalm 8, in which he describes the great position of man in God's creation. Psalm 8 is a poem about Genesis uh, 1, where God says, let us make man in our own image. 
and in Psalm 8, based on what God says in Psalm 1, uh, Genesis 1, the, the psalmist says, What is man that you're so mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? Yet you make him little less than God. Just a little below God. In that, you put all your works, all that you created. And in the psalm, it's when I see the moon, the stars, the sun, which thou art ordained, hast ordained. What is man that you're mindful of? Yet you made him little less than God. You put all things into his hand under his subjection. And it goes on to say... In that he put all things, there is nothing that is not put under him. Nothing that God made was not made to uh, exist outside of being in submission to man. And God says to Adam, now you go and bring that all into submission. The psalm goes on to say, yet we do not see all things subject to man, because man sinned. And uh, never became subject. These things never became subject, have never. This is one of the greatest arguments for, uh, Evan and I were talking about the the rapture and tribulation and uh, millennium. And he said, I am convinced this is a key to understanding, you know, where the church is, where it isn't, the way God works out. It is. Only only premillennialism, the... The eschatological position set forth, as we said last evening, early in the Brethren movement. It is the only thing that really has a time when man will be what God intended man to be. If it wouldn't be for the millennium, God's purpose, not a soteriological, they say salvific. That's a new word that was invented since I went to school. But relating to salvation... Uh, we think of everything relating to our salvation. There's a salvation for the earth, too. And creation's out there groaning for the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8. And when that comes, it's the millennium, and the earth finally is what God wanted to be with man, the way God wanted man to be, ruling over the earth. We see Jesus, and Jesus is now waiting until the earth becomes his, his uh, territory, his uh, kingdom again. And it makes such wonderful sense. But the rest of Hebrews 2, and much more in Hebrews, explains this, that in order to reverse the consequences of sin, we need the incarnation. And uh, in, in chapter 10, he explains that. Is it 10? Get numbers mixed up more lately. Yes, 10. When he comes into the world, he says, when he comes into the world, he says, this is the body you've prepared me. Sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. That's the incarnation. When he comes into the world, this is what the second member of the Godhead says to the Father. This is the body you have prepared me. Me. That can go in one of two places. That can go at that moment when the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary in that mysterious way, as Gabriel tells Mary will happen. 
and the, the child in you will be a product of the special creative act of God the Holy Spirit. At that moment in time when there is life in Mary's womb, maybe that's when the son says, when he comes into the world, a body thou hast prepared me. Or maybe it's nine months later and the first communication from the newborn son of God to his son, to his father, this is the body you have prepared for me. Someplace in that period, this is what happened. In the book of Hebrews, it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does that mean? Was there a difference between the existence of the Son of God on the other side of the incarnation and this side of the incarnation? Is there a difference? That's a huge difference. Up until that time, he was God and God only, right? From that time forevermore, he is the man, Christ Jesus, God and man, united in one body forever. Now, in the second chapter of Hebrews, and this is why I think it's the greatest, one of the reasons I think it's the greatest of miracles, in verse 10 it says, uh, after it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That's a description of the incarnation. Why did he take on mankind, humankind? So he could die. He didn't need to be born to live. He was a source of life. So he comes to die. That's what the incarnation is about. Uh, that he, by the grace of God, might test death for everyone. And that's what he has done. And then it says in verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. That is, it was fitting for the Creator, if he's going to be human, to make uh, the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. Why is it fitting if, in fact, God is going to enter into the human race, that he should suffer and die. Why is that fitting? Why is that? If he's going to be man, why is it appropriate that he should suffer and die? If he's going to be one of us, why should he suffer and die? That's right. Who said that? That's the right answer because we do. That's what's fitting. It's fitting. If you're going to be man, boy, come on down. And this is what it's going to be. It's going to be a long, hard road with all sorts of struggle and temptation and suffering that will culminate in your death because that's the way it is for all mankind. It's fitting. If you're going to be man, that you should suffer and die. That's appropriate. You want to call me brother? And that's what it says he does. He's not ashamed to call his brethren. You want to identify with me? Are you really sure you want to do that? Because this is what it's going to mean. You're going to be suffering. You're going to have to learn obedience. And you're going to have to die. It's fitting. And I would say, 
by God's supreme plan, it's fitting that you should participate in resurrection because way back at the beginning, in the, the oldest book in the Bible probably, uh, Job says, even though I die, I know I shall see my Redeemer and in this flesh I shall see God. And that's part of the God's plan of human redemption. He did not spin out this plan to have us all die and be dead forever. That's part of the human existence too, right from the beginning. Resurrection, there are hints of it in the Old Testament and some clear statements. One early on like Job's. Now that's part of the human condition too, with God's intervention. But that God should ever become man. That's a step. Once in man's shoes, then experience what man is going to do. But it seems odd, doesn't it, that God should become man? Well, that's a step. And immediately we have all sorts of problems. Think of the attributes of God and the attributes of man. Got them in your mind? What we are like and what God is like? Does that present problems just to think of that? What's a big word you can put over all of God's attributes and over all of man's attributes? I'm not thinking about sin at this point yet. Just the attributes of a creature and the attributes of God. What are the attributes of God in relation to the attributes of a creature? That's it. Infinite and finite. Love, infinite, finite. We're limited. Knowledge, infinite, finite. Existence, infinite, finite. You put it over all of it. Now, how are you ever going to bring those two things together in one person? All of a sudden, you get a theological headache, don't you? (laughs) It's really true. That's what we're talking about, this tension. Man, that's right. You hold that forever. And, And we can get all mixed up in that. And frequently, it is a a real struggle in in the struggle of prayer. I was uh, in a hospital visiting uh, Cindy Davis, Jack Fish's daughter, who for 21 days is in the hospital with her newborn daughter, who is having a problem, not a major problem, but a problem. That doesn't seem nearly as serious as the problem that took Courtney's life. But here she is back in the same hospital, back on the same floor, holding the little infant child in the same way with an IV in the child's head uh, to overcome this uh, bacterial infection in her bloodstream and in her spinal fluids which they think they have under control and progress is being made. And I I went in and visited her and I said to you, to her, I said, well, how is uh, Mrs. Job doing today? (laughs) And uh, we had a little chat. I said, Nancy, uh, Cindy, I, I have no words that I can really say to you. I said, I, like you, like everybody else, take uh, 
comfort in uh, the Lord's working. Uh, the, the doctor who cared for Courtney, a wonderful doctor. It's the same doctor that's caring for for uh, little Katie right now. And when Katie got sick, Cindy called up. She got a high fever, just a few weeks old. She called up and said, I need to see the doctor. Well, it wasn't her time to be in. Dr. Hansen, the other doctor, was there, and they said, bring her in. And she got in, and <laughs> there's Dr. Hansen. You know, and she said, yeah, I, I couldn't sleep last night, so I thought I'd come in the office and, and do some paperwork. And when I heard you call in, I said, I'll take care of her. I said, you know, we take comfort in that. But I don't know why God, if he can arrange for the doctor to be there, why can't he arrange for the sickness not to be? And the answer to that is he could. But he didn't. And there you have it all together, the the omnipotence of God and his uh, uneven distribution of his omnipotence. And I don't know how to put all that together. I said, we recognize it. We all sit here recognizing. And I said, this is the mystery stuff we're talking about. We just trust God. We know enough about him to know that he's good. And he who spared not his own son, shall he not freely with him give us all things? And shall he not freely with him withhold some things that we dearly like to have? Right? And you're in this mystery era. Uh, area of our understanding of God. We have to hold him in tension. He loves me, but it doesn't seem like it sometimes. Does it? And uh, that's a great... If you're going to come into this kind of experience like we have Jesus, it's fitting that you should die, but that you should ever come is just a great, great miracle. Unbelievable. It's fitting that he's going to suffer the same way we should. Fitting that he has questions of God as Father. Fitting that you have not my will but thine be done. I didn't say this because that's a heretical motion to make, you realize. The Father and the Son having different ideas. But that's what not my will but your business be done means. Because we experience that. And the author of Hebrews will pick up the Gethsemane scene and say, that's the kind of high priest we have who comes to an end of himself and prays one thing and he gets a no answer from the Father. And through fear, even though he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Man, is that what you're going to be as human? It's fitting that you go through all that kind of stuff as human beings because that's the human condition. But that you should ever choose to do that is an amazing miracle. That first song, what number was that again? No, the first one. You know, when we started singing, I said, that's a home run. That's exactly what we're talking about. We walk out of here with this idea we got it all. At least all we can get. Which number again? No, No, that's the one. Jesus, 
Name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord. Do you love this name for Jesus? Emmanuel? What's it mean It's in the next phrase? God is with us. Does that take your breath away? God is with us. The next hymn had all of the contrasts. Well, let's look at that. The deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. When, when he says, this is the body you have prepared me, he is saying, God with us. God become man. Now, how do we understand this whole concept as best we can? There is one person. Look at your first chart under full deity and perfect humanity, the second page. There is one person with two natures. He has a human nature and a divine nature. Perfect humanity, undiminished deity. Now, by human, what do we mean by that? Sometimes we fall into mistake, error, as we try to describe this. You recall what we're doing is describing and defending, not understanding. I like the third point, and it's, it's the right one. Describe, understand, describe, defend, and then what? Worship. And that's the truth of it. We can describe these things. We can defend these things. To come to fully understand it is the secret door through which we cannot pass. And we go, oh, and worship God. It takes us to have rational faith, but not exhaustive truth. Because we can't get to the exhaustive dimension of truth. We can't understand all that there is to understand about any of these subjects. And we worship. Darby said that clearly in relationship to the hypostatic union, which is what we're looking at in this, the union, union of deity and humanity. We go to understand this, he said, at our own charges. That is, by our own command. What God expects from the hypostatic union is worship. And limited understanding. And what we're trying to do is the limited understanding part of it. What we have to then hold in tension. Perfect humanity. How do you describe the humanity of Jesus Christ? That's what I try to do in this little chart somewhat. How do you describe it? What is our perfect humanity? Not that we have ever had it. Only Adam did. But what is involved in our humanity? Well, part of it's the body we have. It's the body. In relationship to being, the being of the Trinity, the being of God is simplest. God is spirit, period. Incarnation, something is added. He becomes a spirit and material being at that time. God is spirit. Angels, a little more complex. What's, what's the conflict with trying to put angels? What kind of beings are angelic beings? They're spirit, but they are not omnipresent spirit. 
So all of a sudden we're mixing things that probably don't mix uh, a spirit being that doesn't have dimensions with localization. With God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is uh, omnipresence always. Not pantheism, but omnipresence. God is everywhere. Angels are not. Angels are there or here. They come from there to here. And Rari will say they have some sort of a body that shows up on occasion. Their body is capable of being most of the time invisible, but sometimes visible. So they're a little more complex in being. Understand how I'm saying that. And we're even more complex. We have body, soul, and spirit. And when we read about the Lord saying, a body thou hast prepared me, we can have a tendency to think, oh, that's the human side. And the rest of who that God-man is, is his deity side. In other words, the body's his human side, the immaterial part that equates to our soul and spirit. That's the deity side. So Godhood comes just into a body. Is that a true statement? No, it's not. He has a human body. What else does he have as a human? A human soul and a human spirit. Just like we are, apart from sin. Now that's all in addition to who he is in his deity. Fully God, but that now perfectly human as well. A true body that has body characteristics. Can you tell me some of the body characteristics that he experienced through uh, his time here on earth? He was hungry after he was uh, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It says very clearly he was hungry. That makes sense to me. Not eating for 40 days, 40 nights. I think I'd be hungry. Some people say, no, you're not. By the time you go that far, you're not a bit interested in food. Well, Jesus was. And Satan thought he was. First thing he says is, well, look, take these stones and make bread of them. And it is, uh, you can do that. You're the son of God. It is so ingrained in my thinking from teaching life of Christ at that point, I always say something else when I'm, my wife has this miracle capability too, only it's reversed. She takes bread and makes it into stone. <laughs> and the kids go running into her office. You know what, Mr. Clark, you know what this your husband said about you? She says, where was he in life of Christ? Temptation? <laughs> yeah. hey. When the class repeats, you can always, I mean, when the class moves on, you can repeat your stupid little jokes, as my wife will say. <laughs> yeah. He was hungry. Other human characteristics? He was tired. Sat down at the well because he was tired. Went to sleep in the back of a ship because he was tired. Physical experiences like pain. Look at the cross. And all of our pains sort of becomes insignificant, doesn't it? Other things? In his body, the body things. Sleep. 
sleeping, right? I'm sorry. Crying. He wept. Jesus wept. Now that transitions into the emotions of humanity. A physical weeping. There was something behind that emotion. What kind of emotions of, in his uh, immaterial part, soul and spirit, did he experience like you and I do? I'm sorry? Death, ultimately. Sadness. Yeah, and he had varying relationships. Likes John the best, and John bragged on that a couple times. And then they, I tell you, such a humble, you know, John, so, so much like the Lord, the disciple whom he loved. He has to get it in, and he has to get it in under inspiration, too. Yeah, isn't that a mystery? That's the next thing we'll talk about. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I like that one. Boy, right now I'm angry. Yeah. I always like the scenes of Jesus when he gets ticked with people. Why do you think I like that? <laughs> I know, that's my man. And everybody has his picture. Jesus, oh, that's okay. No, I like the one where he drives the cattle out. Fits me better. Yeah. What else? Astonishment. Astonishment. Did you say astonishment? Think of that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, there are all sorts of words that we don't even want to translate. He was perplexed, distressed, astonished, surprised. All good translations of what happened to him there. Well, you'd expect that with human beings because human beings go through a process of learning. You remember I referred to that at the beginning of Revelation and lost you in that one thought for the rest of the weekend. He's still learning? How can that be? You know, well... He's a human being. We'll learn throughout all of eternity. Human being. Yeah, he needed help from outside. Or he'd have died before he was supposed to. He was tempted. And boy, uh, you can go into all sorts of things uh, when you speculate about how was he really tempted. We'll come on that a little bit. I'll probably get into trouble here like I did the last time I spoke on this one, but we'll see. All those human experiences he had based on the fact that he was a true human. Perfect. Temptable like Adam was. True body. True soul and spirit. Amazing, isn't it? And he's called a man. On the undiminished deity or full deity, we do not debate that. Uh, Evangelicals from the beginning have fought great wars over the deity of Christ. And hence we seldom uh, have any question about what that means. Uh, And we do not lose that. If anything, anything, we, we lose the humanity. In the process, uh, we move about in circles where the deity of Christ has never been under question. Likewise, I have to say the, the true humanity uh, seldom gets explained. The words that you used would uh, find someone talking to you at the back of the chapel pretty soon. Astonishment, surprised. <clears throat> 
even learned. I struggle with that one. I have read explanations of not even the Son of Man knows this hour that makes Jesus a liar virtually. That he really didn't mean that, but they weren't ready to bear it quite yet. It means I don't know the hour. That's what it means. Any more than at three he could speak Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew. He learned all that kind of stuff. We misstate his humanity. Now, some sometimes we get the two concepts mixed up. There is no transfer of attributes from either humanity or deity. Humanity does not take on attributes of deity, nor does deity take on attributes of humanity. Now, tomorrow, uh, as Melzi and I will be about an uh, hour or two away from Chicago, uh, why do I say that? From Dubuque, years of saying that. From Dubuque, uh, you'll be breaking bread. And uh, the mass of Christendom mixes up deity and humanity as uh, the Lord's Supper is taken. The Mass of Christendom, and that would be the part of Christendom that has Masses, uh, will say a miracle takes place at that time. What miracle takes place? Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. Humanity becomes omnipresent. And humanity never becomes omnipresent. The body of Jesus does not automatically at that of the elevating of the host become omnipresent in the sense of that's the literal body of Christ in this church and in that church and the next church and all over the world wherever the Eucharist is celebrated. When he says it's my body, it's got to be symbolic. can't be universal. The Lord being with us everywhere is not part of his physical dimension. It's part of his deity dimension. Lo, I am with you always doesn't say my literal body is right next to you. You could see it if it were. And we don't mix the two up. We maintain those two distinctions for the rest of his being, of his existence. He is omnipresent and localized at the same time. Now, I'm describing who he is now. Do you ask? How, ex, explain that to me. How can that be? And I'll have to say, I don't know. That's part of the mystery. How can he be omniscient and learn? We're describing it, and we will defend it. But it causes us to worship. Now, what we are dealing with is the, is the second characteristic, the second chart, the characteristics of deity and humanity. The union of two natures, or two hypostases, forming the one person in Christ. There is that part of him, his nature that is deity. There's that part of him, his nature that is humanity. There are those two natures. They are united in one person forever. 
And the tension, what that means in understandable English is this. He is God as though he were not man. Holy God. Man as though he were not God. Perfectly man. United in one person forever. That's the unifying statement. United. God as though he were not man. Okay. That I can understand. He's just like God. Man as though he were not God. That I can understand. Put the two of them together and I go, I don't get it. Right? That's the way I hold those intentions. If I let go either one of those, I lose it all. God as though he were not man. Man as though he were not God. I have to hold both of those united in one person forever. The theanthropic, the God-man person of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes or quotes an early poem in Scripture about that. This is one of the hymns of Scripture. This is the way it goes. Without controversy, he introduces it. Great is the mystery of godliness. And here comes the, the hymn. God was manifested in the flesh. He is saying, you know, it's not even debatable, this mystery of godliness. Here's a song about it. God was manifested in the flesh. That's his first line. God with us. He describes that as the mystery of godliness. Justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up to glory. Great hymn of the early church. God was manifested in the flesh. And that's... uh, a poetic statement of the union of these two natures, the God-man. Now, in the relationship of God and man in one body, there is a whole description theologically called the communion of the attributes. Last evening, we were talking about praying to God. Do we pray to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? Do we address them differently? Yes, they have different roles to play. We never have to thank the Father for dying on the cross. We can thank Him for thinking of the whole plan for us, planning it out. But He gave the Son to do that, so we thank the Son for dying on the cross, and we could address the Spirit if you feel comfortable doing that, and convicting of sin and of righteousness and judgment and, and giving me new birth. I have no problem thanking any member of the Godhead for what they do on my behalf. My parents always taught me to say thank you to people when they did something nice for you. Well, Holy Spirit's done something nice for me, hasn't he? He's convicted me. I see very little reason to say, Father, would you tell the Holy Spirit that I am appreciative of what he's done? Now, I understand the normal pattern is we have access to the Father in the name of the Son through the Spirit. I understand that. So we have, who am I addressing? Well, when we come to Christ, do you struggle for the way you address him? Uh, the children will usually say Jesus. You ask them to give thanks. They'll say, Jesus, thank you for the food. Seldom will they say, Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, they like the name Jesus. It's a good name, isn't it? Wonderful name. How do you address the second member of the God? What do you call him? Lord? Savior? 
Christ? Redeemer? There are all sorts of names. Now, do you think them through theologically? Uh, when you're praying about things you're experiencing, do you say, Lord God, I'm talking to Jesus, do you understand what I'm going through now? Or do you say, well, I shouldn't do it that way. I should say, Jesus, do you understand what I'm going through now? Because it's the Jesus name that relates him to going through things like I go through. So I better call him Jesus when I'm talking about that. When I'm calling on him to exercise his sovereign power, I'll call him Lord. Lord, this person needs your help. So I'll call him Lord then instead of Jesus. Do you ever struggle that way? You don't have to. You can call him anything you want to call him of his names. Because in Scripture, sometimes you, you uh, hear him spoken of in this way. Jesus knowing all things that should be accomplished. The writers of Scripture didn't have any problem picking out his human name and relating an attribute of deity to him. And they likewise will uh, say, Lord, uh, when he is suffering. And probably it would be more appropriate to say Jesus, but they don't do that. It's called the communion of the attributes. And this is a great mystery. Would would you think that the God-man who is fully God having all the attributes of Godhood, uh, such as omniscience and omnipotence, when he comes to a time in his experience here on earth and when he's tired, he he would have a problem. Oh, which part of me is tired? (laughs) You know? Is this my deity? How can deity be tired? And he's not going through his experience here on earth as a, a, a divine human schizophrenic. He is one person. One person. And you you see what the theologians call the communion of the attributes. Where deity dealings are, are identified with his human names and human dealings like sorrowful and, and uh, understanding are identified with his deity names. The author, the Apostle John, will say uh, when he quotes Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I was alive and I was dead. Wait a minute. Do you see how easily all these dimensions relate together in him? He was the beginning, the end, the Alpha, the Omega, alive and dead. I was Was the Alpha and Omega ever dead? That's a description of God. But it's an easy fit. When Jesus, let me say this in reverence, when God the Son takes on a human being, becomes one of us, it was not an uncomfortable fit. We can't understand that. Because we are on the side of the fall where anything deity is an uncomfortable fit for a human. It makes us uncomfortable. But think of how it was before the fall. Before man ever had an evil thought. Before all the accumulation of sin 
in his physical being and immaterial as well. Think of how it is when David will write of that man. You've made him little less than God. And he's just a little lower than the angels. Image of God is a lot more than we think. Man in his perfection before the fall and what we see in Christ is so much greater than we are we can hardly imagine it. And when we do think of what we have done in a fallen condition, may name, image, and likeness of God, that is astounding. When you think of all that fallen man has produced, it's amazing. I was speaking of this out of Hebrews 2 to my class. My, My father's existence, he would tell me this often. Dave, when I was a boy, people only rode horses. He was born in 1905, as he used to say, and uh, just horses. They told me the fire horse stories so many times that I have a picture in my mind of how the fire horses pulled the wagons and even the sounds they made going over the cobblestone streets with the hooves and the wheels spinning and the sparks flying. I can see it now. Never saw it. (laughs) Never saw it. And he said, and I've seen people on the moon. It's amazing what man has done positively in his fallen condition. What we understand about the way our our body functions, they had a display at at the Museum of Science and Industry of a human being where all the, uh, what do you call those tubes and and arteries and the circulatory system. Is that what that is? So you could see it, and they were, and it was actually in a cadaver that they had worked out some way or another, and the stuff is pumping through there, and you can see it all. Do any of you know how many miles of wiring there is? Some of you doctors know that offhand. It's more than 20 feet, I think, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of, oh, man, all those little... And we understand so much of that now. And in reality, we understand so little of that now at the same time. Man, he's a wonderful creature. And uh, he he comes into the world and there's a communion of the attributes. You know, love is seen in man is a lot closer before the fall to the love of God. You know, when Adam loves his wife Eve... That kind of thing was a lot better than our dimension of loving our wife, whatever her name might be, before the fall. So when he comes into this world, the body is a more comfortable fit, but it is still infinite, limited. And I don't get all that. We can... Define it and describe it. We've worked on that a little bit. Keep it clear in our minds. We can defend it when people attack the deity of Christ or the humanity. The biggest area we fall into a plot in, into a problem with, is in his temptation. And uh, 
there's always been debate over the temptation of Jesus. How much was it like ours? And it revolves around two statements where of Jesus it is said it is impossible for him to sin and it is possible for him not to sin. Which of those do you like? How many prefer the impossible? He was not able to sin as opposed to able not to sin. How many prefer he was not able to sin? I better ask the next question because nobody's voting for that, and that's the normative one. Able not to sin. How many of you like that one better? Able not to sin? Is that right? (laughs) That's right. I think they're both true. Most of evangelicalism says only not able to sin because he's God. God cannot sin, James 1. God is not tempted to sin. That's true. But was Jesus tempted? And what was the devil tempting him to do? Pardon? Yeah, yeah. Kind of sin, isn't it? Yeah. I hold both of those things. Yeah, that's where I come down on this. I was talking to one of my colleagues at school, and we had a discussion over this. Last time I presented this, the preacher who was preaching with me said, David, that's heresy. I'm going to get your tapes and spread them all over the country. (laughs) I said to him, if you do, that's sin. Is that right? Yeah. I said, there's only one group of people responsible to correct me on what I'm saying, and that's the elders who called this meeting. And that's all. And And just then when the elders came up, it was beautiful. Thank you, God. When the elders came up, I said, thank you for that good ministry, David. Well, that was the end of that argument. (laughs) Yeah. Look, Abel, not to sin, says he was a perfect human being who overcame every temptation that came his way. Both of them say he did not sin. It was a real struggle. He was able not to sin. He kept hammering at it. He went all the way to the wall and did not sin. That's the only way he as a priest who understands all of our temptation. He was able not to sin, just like we are able not to sin. He was also not able to sin because he was perfect God. He's God and man. Can you name another man who was able not to sin? Adam. But he didn't take take, uh, advantage of all that was there. Just like with us. We don't have to sin. Peter will say, if you add to your faith virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, endurance, endurance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, you'll never fall. You'll never fall. Now, what's the problem? I don't add. That's all. I'm not good at addition. That's the truth. 
all that we have to live a good life, the, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the Word of God, fellow brothers and Christians, fellow brothers and sisters who are Christians, the church, the protection of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We never have to sin. Everything is there. And he says that certain precious promises have been made. If you partake of that, you'll be a partaker of the divine nature and you'll never sin. And the Apostle John will say, and if we say we sin not, we're a liar and the truth's not in us. It's because we don't take advantage. Jesus took advantage. Adam didn't. Able not to sin. But the Lord Jesus is more than that. He is also not able to sin because he is God. And God cannot be tempted to do evil. Neither does he ever tempt anyone to do evil. James 1.12. So I say that's where it stops. My colleagues will say, oh, you only say the first thing. I said, you're trying to explain away the deity and humanity. You can't just say the one thing. You've got to say both things and say... I don't quite get that, but I'm saying both things. That's where it shows up most often. Being, it's the same Greek word. Same Greek word. Within every temptation, there is, within every testing of God, and there are the trials that come our way, there is solicitation to evil. That's a temptation can be used the same way. Let no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God. But at the same time, uh, the Spirit will lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. That's a strange statement. And we are taught to pray. How's it go? Lead us not into temptation. That comes so perilously close. And we understand that when the Holy Spirit led them into temptation, led him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, this was a, there was a God side and a devil side to that. Just as with the temptation that Paul received, the, the messenger of Satan, God used for his purposes. And that's the way God works. He used even what... He has given the devil permission to do to bring glory to himself. That comes under another section. We'll come on that directly. So wrestle with it. And be willing to say is, I don't know the way this all works out. Well, there's a temptation that is common to preachers that go way too long, and I've about done that. So we'll need to take a break. Uh, if there are questions that I need to respond to now or at the beginning of next hour, let's uh, make certain we have opportunity to do that. Yes, sir. Is that right? Think of that. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Evidently, your wife taught her that. <laughs> Twice around the earth. I guess I'd make it three times, wouldn't I? <laughs> I expect someone, uh, are you going to give thanks for the refreshments out here? You want me? Let, let's close in prayer and we'll, uh, if any of you are really hungry, you can dash back there while the eyes of the rest of us are closed. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to pray. <laughs> Our Father, we thank you for uh, 
this great, great mystery of God manifest in the flesh. We're so happy uh, to be able to sing as we have God with us. Emmanuel takes our breath away. Great is the mystery of godliness. And we're thankful that uh, consequently we have a man in glory who uh, participated in the, the fellowship of food. The wedding at Cana understands that, provides for us even now. We thank you for the food before us, the enjoyment that that brings uh, as we uh, relate to one another with a cup of coffee and a bagel or whatever. And we thank you for this. This is from your good hand. We express our appreciation and ask your blessing upon it in your son's name. Amen. Isn't that great? Keep your finger there. I'll have you read it the next. That's our verse for the day. It is. It is perfect. I was looking at the linear Bible to see the Hebrew. It's pretty close to, you know, we'll follow after all of that. Yeah. Isn't that great? That's exactly what we're doing. It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. I'll call on you right at the beginning. Wave your hand. That's beautiful. Take a number. Ask a question. Yes, 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 yes. Take a number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yesterday, yeah. as you started off, you mentioned the fact that, you know, uh, we've got ten different uh, you know, things that have happened in the church since the beginning of... Uh, the ten doctrines, the ten yes. doctrines. And, uh, you know, it really looks like it's an evolution of thought. It is. It, it, it is. And, and, and then the question arises, okay, how would first century Christians be judged differently from 15th century Christians wow. to 20th century? Well, you know, when, when that was pointed out to me in some theology class way back then, the, the teacher, Dr. Johnson, said, we're the church fathers. They're the church babies. Okay. Way back look, then. Uh, look at it that way. They just didn't get it nearly as much as we do. Oh, which is very true. Which is, I mean, oh, yeah. Very much like the Old Testament in a sense. That, you know, you they had, say that of themselves. You, yeah. You had the, you know, the tabernacle to the. Yeah. To the, uh, you know, so, so when to a large extent, when we say, you know, we should not change in anything that we do, that's not absolutely. We're, we're true. changing all the time. Now, it, it's very interesting where, where the changes are taking place now. You know, the, the seminaries still require people to write dissertations, and they invent new stuff, and, and it's happening at Dallas right now as dispensationalism is getting less dispensational. They're having problems, and they're starting to reinvent the wheel in relationship to, uh, and we're really fighting the battles all over again, which is so stupid, but we are. In relationship to the Trinity, there's big debate amongst uh, scholars about the nature of the omniscience of God. The open theism is heresy. I mean, people would rather believe in the humanity of Jesus. Now, that's right. And the limitation of God in knowledge because it it's more understood. What it really is, is if God knows everything, 
why in the heck did he make such a mess out of it? That's what they're saying. We're embarrassed with hell and with suffering and with not everybody getting saved. And we will say, and this is what they're saying and about to be thrown out of the Evangelical Theological Society, that God is learning the way we're learning, but he's way ahead of us on the curve. Oh, yeah. Well, progressive. Yeah, and that won't make it in the hospital room or, or in the cemetery. Everything's a surprise to God. I have no comfort. All the verses of Scripture that, that comfort us in the human experience and talk about deliverance from eternal judgment are of no significance if they could be wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. We go to heaven, and the rest just. But the tension between humanity and deity is something that everybody struggles with, and we must. We should. That's right. But you know, generally in the world today. The humanity part of it is yeah. is accepted. You see it, and you see it. Match. Every movie that comes out, everything is, is very much enhancing. You see, you see it as it trickles into the church, in areas of alternate lifestyle. Oh, we can't be harsh. We have to be kind and gentle and understanding. Divorce area hit us there a lot earlier, where you're just oh sure, whatever reason, and God will forgive you. And it's it's stressing. He understands who we are. He knows how tough it is, and he, he's a loving God and forgiving. And all. yeah. Well, I mean, the next session, the inspiration of the Oh yeah, 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 I, yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 yeah. Comes to real. Oh yeah, I'm not, you know. <laughs> I, that's evolving according to the uh, Yeah, that's it. It, it, it. You you experience it and it becomes the word for you now. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask him about prepared body whistles. A body I've been arguing about it back and forth. Yeah, a body that has prepared for us. Do you think, does that mean, what, did, did Jesus partake of the genetic code of Mary? <laughs> no, I think it was a special act of creation. Uh-huh. Uh, he is, he is uh, qualified through Mary to sit on the throne as a human being. Uh-huh. So how that works out in all its technicalities, I don't know. You don't know. Because if uh-huh. it was part of Mary, then how did he avoid the sin? Well, that's the virgin birth concept. It, it's passed on from parents on. There was no passing on here. It's a special act of creation. There's a special Latin term for that or Greek term that I don't know. One one says it was just a normal child born, rather, but in a miraculous way conceived. Another that the whole uh, thing is a special act of creation of the Holy Spirit. The closest it comes is when Mary asks that question, how shall it be? And the closest the Bible comes to answering it says the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. That's where the answer is. Uh-huh. And I don't know what that means exactly. Yeah. It's one of those. Yeah, I mean, it's. Some would seem to think that the, that was like a, a, a Barbie doll was just inserted in her. No, he's true man. Uh-huh. True man. True human being. Uh-huh. Uh, so it, it's not just an a alien that's birthed uh-huh. by her. Uh-huh. Right. It, when God finished creation at the beginning, so this was a new creation. 
you know, he was creating again. I think so. Yeah, I think that's, that's the But uh, how? I don't, I don't know exactly how that works out. I do think that then, like now, they would try to identify who the child looked like, and they would have to say Mary, uh-huh. not Joseph. Uh-huh. I do think he would uh, look more like our brothers with dark hair, dark complexion, brown eyes. He's a Jewish baby boy, not the blonde-haired Jesus we see in the movies with blue eyes and that kind of thing. I guess the question is how much of the gestation period do they go through? You know, pick the normal nine months and... Uh, yeah. And, well, and yeah, so, the, the, the feeding of the food and everything, they, I mean... That's all that's, normal. That, that's Nothing all miraculous normal. about that. the human part of it. That's right. That's all the same. It's the conception. That's why uh, when he comes into the world, I would put it when he saith, lo, this is the body. I think that's the conception second. Uh-huh. And whatever the veiling of his glory was that he says, restore to me the glory I had, took place at that moment in heaven where the God-man is in his beginnings. And that would argue, man, you understand, that would argue from my perspective that at the moment of conception, there is human life. Mm -hmm. I think that's when it starts. Uh And uh, that's when he comes into the world at that point. Well, you know, the scripture says, by one man, sin entered into the world. Do we get our sin nature from our father's side? Most would say that, yeah. It's passed on from the father. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so because his father was God, so he didn't inherit sin then. Yeah, but you don't view, <laughs> you don't view God as, uh, how can I say this, uh, and, and, uh, in a guarded way, uh, God... In the same way, we produce a child coming upon Mary, and there's some... No, it's a special act of oh, creation. Oh, yeah, 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 right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mysterious, to be sure. Great, isn't it? It is. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. You're looking as well as ever. Well, thank you. Yeah, the Lord is good. Yeah. 